Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon. My name is my name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Constitutional Studies Program. I'm speaking from my office here on the campus of the University of Notre Dame. Uh, welcome to our event this afternoon with Dr. Sam uh, Gregg. Um, I've been long uh, an admirer of Dr. Gregg, and my only regret is that uh, he cannot be here on campus uh, with us, but that allows us to uh, do the Zoom lecture. Um, we'll have time. We have a small group of students gathered uh, together. Uh, watching the lecture. We'll give them the uh, uh, first option to ask some questions. And I want uh, all of you who are watching online to know that we would be delighted if uh, you are able to ask questions as well. If you use the raise hand function, um, uh, Soren Hansen, who is my program manager, will uh, uh, call on people to ask questions for those watching online uh, as well. Uh, let me properly introduce Sam Gregg before I turn uh, this over to him. Uh, Sam Gregg is Research Director of the Acton Institute. He's written and spokenly, ex spoken extensively on questions of political economy, economic history, ethics, finance, natural law theory, uh, uh, MA from the University of Melbourne, and his Doctor of Philosophy is from Oxford, where, Dr. Gregg, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe uh, you worked with our own John Finnis. I did. Um, Dr. Gregg has too many, has published too many books for me to uh, a list. Let me just uh, mention a recent one, and I think my favorite one uh, by him, um, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. That was published in 2019. I was late with my blurb for the book, which I very much regret, but my blurb for the book was, uh, which I wanted to be on the back cover, was, if you want to save Western civilization, read this book. It's a phenomenally good book, uh, and I encourage you all, all to read it. Uh, the topic of Dr. Gregg's remarks today is um, Catholic social thought and uh, free and virtuous society. It's my great pleasure to uh, introduce my friend, Dr. Samuel Gregg. Dr. Gregg. Well, I hope you can all hear me. Thank you, Professor Munez. It's good to see some familiar faces on the screen. I see Professor Otteson, who I believe has recently joined Notre Dame. I'm sure he's a very worthy a worthy addition to uh, the great faculty that I know permeate all parts of the university there. It's my pleasure today to talk to you about Catholic social thought and the free society. Uh, this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time, both in terms of freedom and liberty and what Catholic social teaching as a branch really of moral theology, I guess, that takes atten pays attention to disciplines like economics, political science, history, what these things say about the nature of the free society and what makes Catholic social teachings understanding of the free society a little different from some others. A very good starting point, I think, for thinking about the free society within the context of Catholic social thought a very good place to start is where many good discussions should start, and that is with the scriptures. Uh, many of you will remember and know the famous words of uh, Jesus of Nazareth, which are recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 20, 25. And the famous words, of course, were, 
render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. I think this is a very good way of starting to think about Catholic social teaching and the free society for a couple of reasons. One is that Catholic social teaching doesn't begin in 1891 with the first social encyclical Rerum Novarum. That was a very important event, and I'll say more about that later. But Catholic social teaching really begins with the scriptures. They are one of the foundational sources of Catholic social teaching. And this particular part of scripture, the Gospel of Luke, where Christ essentially draws a type of distinction between God and the state are, of course, very important for understanding the free society from the standpoint of Catholicism. Because it's very interesting that in the very next verse after that, Luke's gospel goes on to say that the answer of Jesus of Nazareth, when he was asked this question about taxation, his answer took his questioners by surprise. That's Luke 20, 26. Because it's very important to remember that in the ancient world, as Lord Acton, uh, who is the person after whom the Acton Institute is named, whereas Lord Acton, the 19th century Catholic historian observed, he said, in the ancient world, in the pagan world, in religion, morality, and politics, there was only one legislator and one authority. And in the Greek world, that was the polis. And in the Roman Empire, ultimately, it was the Roman state. So Christ's words took his listeners by surprise because the idea that there is some type of separation between what you might call the temporal realm and the spiritual realm, the idea that, that government literally cannot do whatever it wants, that government is not the ultimate arbiter of moral right and wrong, let alone uh, political questions, this was somewhat comprehensible to the Jewish mind, but completely incomprehensible to the Roman mind, the pagan mind, the Greek mind. Because this was a new departure in the world's experience of religion. In the pagan world, it's very important to remember that the state controlled religion in all its aspects. <clears throat> so when Christ says these words, and his followers start to live out what they understood to be the implications of these words, we see a radical demarcation placed down by early Christianity upon the authority of the state. <clears throat> and this is important because in the ancient world, the state was viewed as having godlike, uh, godlike uh, capacities, godlike qualities, uh, Caesar was regarded as Dei Filius, the son of God. It didn't mean he was God himself, but they meant that the state that he represented and the empire had these divine characteristics. And Christianity comes along and says, we respect the emperor, we respect the state, but the state is not God. And, the, and being not being God and not being our savior, the state cannot tell us to do all sorts of things that the pagan world certainly accepted that the state could do. 
So I mentioned this because it, it's really the beginning of sustained reflection upon the relationship between the church and the state, which of course is one axis through which Catholic social teaching has thought about some of these political, religious, and as we'll, I'll say later, economic questions. But it also says something about the relationship between society and the state. And by society, I mean things like the economy, I mean the family, I mean things like the civil institutions, the civil associations that people like Alexis de Tocqueville, who I know you will learn a lot about uh, with your professors, he noticed in the 19th century how Americans in particular took the idea of civil association particularly seriously. So Catholic social teaching works on these two axes, the relationship between church and state, which uh, for contemporary purposes, I think is very well spelt out in Vatican II's uh, documented declaration on, hu on human um, on religious freedom, dignitatis humanae, uh, but also the relationship between state and society, which is the focus of the modern social encyclicals going forward from Rerum Novarum onwards. So let's say something about the modern Catholic social tradition and the way that it thinks about freedom. Well, I think the first point to note is that the Catholic understanding of freedom, as it is articulated in the social encyclicals, very much depends upon the particular anthropology of the person that is articulated by Catholic social teaching. By anthropology, I mean the understanding of who human beings are and the implications that has for how we interact with other people and the world. And Christian anthropology essentially says this, that humans are individual, all individual, we are literally unrepeatable as individual human beings. We are social. All of us are social beings by nature. No man is an island. In the case of Catholic social teaching, we are individual beings, but we are also social beings. Another dimension of Catholic social teaching when it comes to um, Christian anthropology and its understanding of the person is that we are creative beings. This is talked about in texts ranging from Genesis to many of the social encyclicals, which talk about our unique capacities, human beings, to shape ourselves and the world around us. We are also sinful beings. This is another reality that Christian anthropology, as expressed through the Catholic social encyclical tradition, strongly emphasizes. And that means that when we think about economic questions, when we think about social questions, political questions, and the way in which we live out our freedom on a day-to-day -day basis, we need to pay a great deal of attention to the fact that we are not perfect. We are fallible. We make mistakes. Sometimes we choose evil rather than good. So if you look at the Catholic social tradition, it strongly emphasizes this idea of Christian anthropology. I think of all the social encyclicals, this is perhaps best spelled out in detail in the 1991 social encyclical Centesimus Annos, which was written by St. John Paul II. But it's certainly implicit and explicit to different degrees in the other social encyclicals as well. 
So that foundation of Christian anthropology matters because how you understand human beings is going to determine how you understand literally everything else you think about the world. When it comes to the Catholic understanding of the nature of freedom, we also need to think about some of the ways in which that is distinguished from some other traditions of freedom. So that again depends upon the Christian understanding of the person that we find in the encyclical tradition. So what we find here is that a, there is a strong insistence that first of all, human beings are free and by freedom, it means this radical capacity to not just freely choose to shape the world around us, but also to freely choose good or evil and thereby shape ourselves as persons. Now, I think this is important to keep in mind because this conception of freedom is also highly dependent upon a particular understanding of reason, which is very much part of the Catholic social tradition, and its relationship to free will. So reason and free will working together as people make genuine free choices, either for good or for evil, and therefore become responsible for their choices and actions. This, I think, is a, a significant emphasis of Catholic social teaching because it reflects the Catholic tradition's understanding of the nature of liberty. In one sense, it is about freedom from unreasonable coercion. It's about freedom from an overbearing state. It's about freedom from any number of institutions that can develop oppressive characteristics. Because the Catholic position, as we find in the encyclicals, is that to make free choices, you need a certain degree of autonomy and space if you are to develop as human beings. But there's a second part to this, the second part to this understanding of freedom. And that is, while freedom from unreasonable external coercion is important, there's a type of higher freedom to which our reason and our will working together is directed. We often use the phrase human flourishing to describe that in our contemporary period. But it's really about living out the theological and cardinal virtues and all the basic moral goods that make us distinctly human and enable us to realize ourselves as we are meant to be. Now, this is a little different from those conceptions of freedom that talk about, for example, the necessity for liberty from unreasonable coercion. That's fine and good, but some of those traditions have a lot less to say about this dimension of human flourishing. On the other hand, there are those who talk a great deal about human flourishing and the importance of virtue, but have rather less to say about the importance, in fact, the indispensability of liberty as the way through which we make these free choices for the good. So Catholic social teaching brings these two things together. It's emphasis upon freedom in the sense of freedom from unreasonable coercion, but also this idea of this higher freedom where we achieve a type of dominion over ourselves, a type of self-mastery. So that's another thing I think is, is very significant when it comes to Catholic social teaching and the idea of the free society. 
Let's talk a little bit about how that cashes out in terms of the state, in terms of economic life, and in terms of that realm that is often called civil society. When it comes to the state, as I mentioned before, uh, the Catholic tradition is not an anarchist one, and it also is not a totalitarian one either. Catholic social teaching makes a distinction between church and state, between society and state. It sees the state, by which I mean, I'm, here I'm really talking about the government. The government is having certain responsibilities to what's called the political common good. The political common good, and the idea of the common good is something that's very important to Catholic social teaching, but the idea of the political common good are those responsibilities that really no other institution apart from the state can fulfill in society. Some of those things might be the provision of rule of law, protection of things like property rights, uh, questions of national security, in some instances, certain welfare functions, etc. What's interesting about this is that the political common good, as I just described it, it doesn't just define what the responsibilities of the states are, it also limits those responsibilities. It says to us that the political common good is part of this wider common good of society, and the common good in this sense means those conditions that permit people under their own volition to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful. And you find much of this articulated in documents like Vatican II's Guardian that Spares, as well as many other Catholic uh, social encyclicals. But I think this is very important because what it points to is that while Catholic social teaching sees certain role for the state, certain functions for the state, it does not see the state as the object of what human flourishing is about. It does not see the state as the end point of freedom. In fact, it puts down very firm limits upon the state and what the state can do and cannot do. And one of the principles that Catholic social teaching emphasizes, and this really starts to emerge in, in 1931 with Pius XI's encyclical Quadragesimal Annal, this understanding of the, of the limits on state power is to be found in what's called the principle of subsidiarity. And the principle of subsidiarity basically means two things. It means on the one hand that there's a freedom principle, that people need to be given space to pursue human flourishing under their own volition, whether as individuals or as communities. But it also points to the need on occasion for the state to undertake a type of supportive role in helping people to achieve this type of flourishing. Now, in most instances, that cashes out into the state doing those things that really the state can only do. Things like maintaining rule of law, protecting property rights, national defense, etc. But there are occasions when the state may need to intervene when other communities that would normally be fulfilling certain functions are either failing to do so or can't cope at that particular point in time. And this is the assistance dimension of the principle of subsidiarity. So subsidiarity combines two axioms. One is this emphasis upon maintaining and protecting people's autonomy. And the second is this idea of assistance. Assistance, but 
when you bring those two things together, what you realize is that this assistance principle is not a reason for the state to take over our lives because the autonomy part of the principle of subsidiarity tells us that there are limits to what the state can do when it comes to assisting us or assisting particular communities that are facing particular problems at a particular point in time. And in fact, it is also the case that Catholic social teaching insists that once a community is functioning as it should, once it has overcome the crisis it was experiencing, then the state needs to step back. So the principle of subsidiarity is very important when it comes to mediating the role of the state and society. And it implies, I think very clearly, a limited role for the state in performing some of those functions. Let's talk about the economy and Catholic social teaching. I think it's true to say that the economy is one of the subjects that Catholic social teaching has addressed a great deal right from the very beginning. If you look at modern Catholic social teaching with the encyclical Rerum Novarum, that is clearly written as a type of formal Catholic response to the economic revolution that really began with thinkers like uh, Adam Smith and took practical form in the industrial revolution that swept its way across Europe in the 19th century and of course North America and parts of the developed world and further now and starting to manifest itself all through the 20th century. And the, the church needed to articulate a response to this because it had re produced a great deal of disruption, not just in political life, but also in economic life as well. Suddenly, entire societies move away from highly agricultural settings towards highly industrial capitalized settings. And at this time in the 19th century, in the early part of the 20th century, we see the emergence of any number of political movements that are offering particular solutions to what they understand to be some of the traumas and problems being encountered by these newly industrial societies, particularly in Europe and North America. We see the emergence of Marxism, we see the emergence of socialism, we see the emergence of movements uh, called corporatist movements. And this was particularly influential in parts of the Catholic world. And corporatism is essentially the idea that different representative groups of different parts of society work together under the supervision of the state to try and promote the common good. So these are the types of movements that Catholic social teaching is having to address when it comes to dealing with the great economic turmoil that's occasioned by the revolution of ideas that begins with the wealth of nations and the industrial revolution. Now, what is clear here is that Catholic social teaching when it comes to particular prescriptions for what the church has thought or the popes have thought needs to be done at these different points of history. What's very clear is that the prescriptions have often varied. Uh, so for example, in the context of the Great Depression, we find Pius XI uh, Pius uh, articulating a type of corporatist model for society. Uh, when we move into the 1960s, we see the church articulating a more interventionist role for the state when it comes to the economy. And by that, I don't mean socialism. It's very clear right from the very beginning that Catholic social teaching 
unambiguously condemns socialism. And it also, if you, if you read the so, social encyclicals very carefully, you realize there's not a single point at which the church praises socialism. In the 1990s, we see uh, John Paul II's Centesimus Annos, which contains what I think is fair to say, a qualified endorsement of the market economy. With Benedict XVI, we see less talk about the specifics of markets in particular, but much more attention to the type of culture and the cultural and institutional supports that it is believed a market economy needs. Uh, with Pope Francis, I think it's fair to say that we see a great emphasis upon themes of justice, themes of poverty, themes of how we deal with any number of problems ranging from corruption to some of the dysfunctionalities that we've seen in different parts of the world's economies, particularly when it comes to the financial system. So there's all that variation, and that's a reflection of the fact that popes are responding at different points of time to what are perceived to be different problems that are manifesting themselves. But as I said, there's some important things just to keep in mind here, some perimeters, if you like, that, that bind and put boundaries around this discussion. One is that something I just mentioned. There's no endorsement of, Catholic, of socialism or Marxism in Catholic social teaching. These things are explicitly condemned. The second thing I think we find is that there is an implicit and sometimes explicit endorsement of some very basic institutions that are necessary for economic freedom. Business, for example, and entrepreneurship are gener generally uh, seen as good things in Catholic social teaching. We see John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis talking about this. We see an emphasis upon the essentially good character of economic creativity. We find this in Rerum Novarum and many other encyclicals. We see an affirmation of the principle of competition, of free competition. We also see the idea of private property taken very seriously. Now, in Catholic social teaching, private property is not regarded as absolute. Private property is seen as a type of derivation of how you realize what's called the universal destination of material goods. Now, the material destination of material goods is not collectivism. It's not socialism. It doesn't mean that everyone owns everything. All it simply means is that the goods of the earth, the goods that have been given to us by God and which human beings have made through the application of their intellect and their labor to the material world, uh, all this means is that this is available for everyone to use. Use, the use of the goods of the earth. This is what the universal destination of material goods is about. But then you get to the question of, well, how do you realize this? How do you give effect to this? How do you enable this to occur in light of things like human fallibility, in light of things like human experience? The human experience, for example, that common ownership uh, rarely turns out very well. So private property is the normative disposition of the church when it comes to how we organize the ownership of property. Now, as I mentioned, it's not considered absolute. The church does say that there are occasions when the, the universal destination of material goods overrides the principle of private ownership. 
But if you look at the consistent tradition of Catholic teaching on this issue, and you find it very well expressed, for example, in question 66 of uh, Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, the relationship between the universal destination of material goods and the institutional private property is quite clear. Private property is the way in which we normally give effect to this principle of the universal destination of material goods. There are exceptions, but they are few. And the idea of the universal destination of material goods being prior to the idea of private property is not a license for individuals, communities, and especially the state to go around and engage in arbitrary confiscations and redistributions of wealth. So I think that's very important when it comes to understanding how freedom operates in the economy according to Catholic social teaching, because freedom in the economy is taken extremely seriously. Otherwise, there would not be things like these limits upon which the church insists when it comes to what the church, what the state can and cannot do when it comes to economic life. Let me say one last thing before we get to the period of quick questions. I'd like to say something about civil society and culture. By civil society, what I mean is that vast range of institutions and associations that are not family associations, but are also not political associations. Uh, the University of Notre Dame is an example of a civil association. The Acton Institute is an example of a civil association. A business, a club, these are associations of people who are not members of the same family, but nonetheless come together in order to achieve certain goods or certain objectives that, that that association is built around. The, the, the good around which the University of Notre Dame is built is the acquisition of knowledge and the pursuit of truth. Uh, the object of a business, the primary objective of a business is to create economic value for customers and shareholders and owners of a given business. So this is effectively, of course, where many people spend enormous amounts of time. And Catholic social teaching, particularly because it emphasizes this principle of subsidiarity, takes this intermediate sphere of life very seriously, because this is where many of us live out many of our freedoms on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's when we're studying, whether it's where we're in the workplace, whether it's in the type of leisure activities we pursue, these are areas of life, spheres of society that Catholic social teaching thinks are very important because they enable us to pursue a galaxy and a plurality of different types of goods that help us to flourish. So this means that there are limits upon what the state can do when it comes to uh, ordering the ways in which these different organizations function. So Catholic social teaching emphasizes this because it sees this as a sphere in which many different goods are realized, in which much human potential is realized. And it also is a way of reminding us that not all of life is wrapped up in politics and not all of life is wrapped up in the economy. If you like, it's a type of third sphere that helps to humanize and limit 
how far the economy goes in our day-to-day -day activity, and also how far politics goes in our day-to-day -day activity. And I should mention in this case that in this regard, there's often a heavy emphasis placed upon culture and the significance of culture for a free society. If you want an example of this, I'd recommend that you read um, Benedict XVI's um, Social Encyclical Caritas in Veritate. I'd also suggest that you might like to read the Social Encyclical that was promulgated on Sunday, Fratelli Tutti. Uh, there's all sorts of things that we could talk about with, when it comes to that encyclical. But one of the things that it does talk about in great detail is the importance of culture informing people's lives, of providing a type of environment in which people can flourish, and why it's very important to have, if you like, the right type of culture in place. Because culture is really the way in which we express and solidify many of the things that we think are important in life, whether it's values, whether it's the type of habits, whether it's our ways of interacting with one another. And culture, of course, is often considered one of these, I guess, fluffy things that is very hard to pin down. But Catholic social teaching pays a great deal of attention to this because it recognizes that this is the area of life in which many people live out their freedoms, but culture is also highly influential on how we exercise our freedoms. If we live in a culture that's highly characterized by, let's call it socialist or status expectations, that's going to have radical implications for how we live our lives in very negative ways. So too would a culture in which hedonism is the dominant ethical outlook that dominates how people think and act in the world. On the other hand, a culture which takes things like truth, good, and beauty very seriously, a culture which values life, which values knowledge, which values um, free participation and free association between people, a culture which values human creativity, well, that's going to give a very different flavor to the way in which people live out their freedoms. Now, I'm not saying, and the Catholic tradition certainly doesn't say, that culture is somehow something that determines everything about what we do. No, we do still have reason. We still have the capacity to make free choices. And people can still do that, albeit in very difficult and sometimes painful and costly ways in totalitarian societies. But the, the type of culture that I just described, beauty, truth, the good, the pursuit of truth, creativity, all these good things that make human life more humane are very much central to how Catholic social teaching understands the importance of freedom and the type of shape and contours that are assumed by freedom in any given society at one point in time. So I think I'll stop there because I know there'll be time for questions and I'm very happy to entertain any that you might have to ask. So thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Greg. Um, let's see, Soren, I'm gonna ask you to uh, ask if there are any questions from the students who are gathered uh, together uh, in person. And while Soren does that, I'll encourage um, those who are watching online to use the raise hand function. Uh, I'm not so technologically adept, but Soren is, and. I think we can get questions from people online. Okay, uh, go ahead, please. 
Dr. Greg. Thank you very much for the presentation. My name is Veronica Maskett, and I'm a junior here at Notre Dame studying business analytics. My question is about public social teaching's vision for the means of implementing its goals and aims, particularly in a free society, which holds pluralistic views, uh, and, and how you think that the Catholic social teaching can be implemented in a free society where there's competing ideas about what the end goal is for the society to, to, to aim towards. Well, wonderful. Thank you. That's a, that's a great question. Um, well, Catholic social teaching recognizes the plurality of any given society. It recognizes that, uh, especially modern Catholic social teaching, it recognizes that, uh, particularly after the Enlightenment, uh, we live in societies in which there's often radical disagreement about what's good, what's not. There's radical disagreement about the nature of freedom and its ends, what makes life fulfilling and what makes life unfulfilling. Catholic social teaching recognizes those as distinct realities. It also says that there are many different ways in which one can live out all these good things, that pluralism, in other words, doesn't necessarily mean buying into a relativistic understanding of the world, because there's a plurality of ways in which all of us can participate in the different goods that make us distinctly human, depending upon our circumstances, depending upon our vocation, depending upon uh, the, the situations that we find ourselves in. The second thing I would say is that and this is something I did not talk about in my lecture. The second thing is that um, Catholic social teaching takes the idea of truth very seriously. And Catholic social teaching also tells us that regardless of your religious beliefs, it's possible for all of us to use our reason, our reason, our natural reason, what's often called the natural law tradition within um, Catholic circles, by which one can argue for things like the principle of subsidiarity, where one can argue for things like why it's important to limit the state, whereby one can argue for things like the importance of human creativity without me citing the scriptures, without me citing church tradition, without me even citing Catholic social teaching. Um, and that, that, that applies to those sorts of questions. It also applies to all the usual controversial questions as well. In fact, I often recommend that when engaging in debates about these subjects that Catholics should usually begin and try and end with appeals to reason because that is presumably a common ground upon which the believer and the non-believer, the Catholic and the non-Catholic, can say, look, there is a common ground in which we can argue about these sorts of things. The third thing I'll say is that Catholic social teaching doesn't propose a distinct model of society. Catholic social teaching recognizes that the principles of Catholic social teaching, things like the principle of human freedom, of subsidiarity, the principle of love of neighbor, which we often call uh, solidarity. Um, these principles can cash out in different ways. Catholic social teaching doesn't say you have to be a avid free marketer. Catholic social teaching also doesn't say that you need to be an avid social democrat. In other words, Catholic social teaching recognizes that 
in the application of most Catholic social teaching, there's a legitimate plurality of positions that even Catholics can come to uh, without necessarily having to agree. So uh, a good example of this I often use is economics. I happen to think that you can be a good Catholic and very much a believer in free markets. I also think you can be a good Catholic and more or less a type of neo-Keynesianism. The reason I say that, that is because these are the areas in which the church provides us with principles for thinking through these problems as we arrive at different prudential judgments about these types of questions. Now, there are some issues where Catholic social teaching does translate into some very concrete responsibilities. You can't say that you adhere to Catholic social teaching and then ignore the poor. You can't say that you adhere to Catholic social teaching and say that abortion and euthanasia are okay. Some of those principles translate very, very clearly into some specific positions that uh, Catholics are, I think, obliged to work for and struggle for and try and realize. But they tend to be the exception rather than the rule. And I often think that this is not often understood, even by many Catholics. They, you often find that they'll say things like, well, if you're a Catholic, you must hold this particular economic position, to which my response is, well, in most cases, that's not actually true. So I think Catholic social teaching recognizes the, the fact of pluralism. It recognizes that there are different prudential judgments that people can rightly arrive at. Uh, and it also, however, also insists that these principles of Catholic social teaching can be understood not just on the basis of Catholic faith, but on, on the basis of reason itself. And reason is the common ground, ultimately, that the presumably one can say to someone who is not a Catholic or is not a believer, surely we can agree that reason is the place where we need to start having these discussions. Uh, Dr. Greg, I might uh, add, uh, ask a, just a brief follow-up on your, uh, to the question that was just asked. Uh, you said Catholic social thought uh, offers a wide range uh, of reasonable applications of prudence to distinct uh, situations. So from a more, let's say called libertarian to a more neo-Keynesian, but why not socialism? If I understood your presentation correctly, um, uh, uh, Pope John Paul II, I think you suggested, uh, thought socialism was incompatible. Yes. Why isn't socialism one of the range of uh, possibilities that Catholic social thought is open to? Uh, well, if you look at the modern Catholic social tradition, uh, we see how this opposition has been expressed and articulated with different emphases. So, for example, if you read Rerum Novarum, which was the first modern social encyclical, and frankly, I think in many ways, maybe the best of all the encyclicals, um, what's very clear there is that Pope Leo was writing in a context in which socialist movements were, first of all, very active and growing across, across Europe. You also see a case in which um, many of those socialist movements were highly influenced by Marxism. So we're not talking about sort of mild social democrats. We're talking about social movements that were highly influenced by Marxist thinking, Marxist dialectics, Marxist understandings of history. So that was one reason why Leo XIII was very explicit in condemning socialism, because socialism at the time 
was Marxism, was applied Marxism. And there's very clearly a problem from a Catholic standpoint with Marxism. Uh, it's atheism being, being one of those sort of rather problematic aspects of Marxism. But what's also interesting about that is that Leo XIII also identifies the way in which socialism undermines private property, in fact, denies private property. Um, and that is significant because Leo XIII actually describes um, the possession of property, he calls it a, a sacred right, a sacred right. Now, he doesn't mean it's absolute. What he does mean, however, is that it's an economic and political institution that needs to be taken very seriously, that it helps to order society, that possessing and owning and using private property is the normative way in which our relationship to the material world, this universal destination of common goods, is mediated. And socialism, certainly at the time, was all about the abolition of private property. And Leo is explicit about that. So by the way is um, Pius XI. He's also very explicit that part of the problem with socialism is this, partly it's Marxist roots, but also it's, it's contempt for private property. So that's a consistent part of the opposition to socialism. Uh, but another, which I think is very strongly expressed in the encyclicals of John Paul II and Benedict XVI is that attempts to create socialist societies. The problem, he, John Paul II says, is that it's based upon a false anthropology of the person, by which I mean socialism essentially more or less denies human freedom, denies the importance of freedom, insists upon um, the collective over the individual, or in other words, it takes the social part of the human person and basically denies the individuality. Uh, he also, in Centesimos Anos, John Paul II also highlights the atheistic roots of contemporary socialist thought. Um, he also goes on and says that socialism uh, also tries to build a type of economic system that denies human freedom. And that's a problem. It's a problem because if you start denying certain aspects of human nature, you can be sure that the results will be pretty terrible. So in the case of socialism, what does it deny? It denies human individuality, it denies human liberty, and therefore human responsibility. Uh, it also, um, it also denies the fact that human beings are fallible. Because remember, socialism is premised on the idea that there's going to be this small group of planners, be it a dictator, um, a central committee, uh, 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 one particular group of economists who are going to plan everything about the economy. And that obviously means the enormous extension of state power throughout the economy, which obviously has not just effects for economic freedom, but spillover effects for political freedom as well. So the case against socialism in Catholic social teaching, it's based on its, its, its um, Catholic social teachings, attention to private property, its attention to human freedom, its attention to the individual dimension of human, human existence, 
Uh, and it's also attentive to the fact that we are not perfect. I know that's hard to understand sometimes, but as human beings, we're not perfect and we never will be. And we need, when we're thinking about the economic order and the political order, we need to factor that element of human fallibility into the equation. And socialism more or less pretends that you can dispense with that dimension of human fallibility. Okay. I apologize for jumping ahead in the queue, but thank you very much. Um, I see a number of questions out there. Let me ask, uh, Soren, is there anyone else uh, gathered together there that has a question? And then let me just say, Mike Giles, I can see you submitted a question in writing, and I know Professor Otteson, um, Colin, I see that you have a question, and Thomas as well. So we have a lot of questions, uh, Professor Greg, so we'll try to uh, uh, keep the question short and the answer is relatively short as well. Okay. Uh, please, go ahead. Hi, Dr. Greg. Uh, I'm Blake Ziegler. I'm a sophomore studying political science and philosophy. I just want to ask a clarifying question on your second point when you were responding to the first question about how you don't necessarily have to use Catholic social teaching to reach the that it has. So we should be like using reason and kind of a system of pluralism. If it's true that we can reach those same conclusions without Catholic social teaching, is there anything intrinsic uh, to Catholic social teaching that means we should look to it anyway? Or um, basically what I'm asking, is there anything unique about Catholic social teaching that makes it better than like an appeal to reason? Okay, well, <clears throat> Catholic social teaching, certainly for Catholics, I think, um, uh, we talk about natural law all the time, and that's part of Catholic social teaching, particularly when it comes to um, understanding the ways in which uh, legal justice, commutative justice, and distributive justice have direct implications for different parts of economic life, for example. But what is what is what marks Catholic social teaching out as different from, say, let's call it a sort of secular natural law position or just strict natural law position, is obviously its references to the scriptures, uh, as well as what you might call church tradition. And I'm thinking here of, obviously, um, the church fathers, the lives of saints, etc., these are very important reference points for Catholic social teaching. And if anything, this might sound a little controversial, if anything, I think that they need to be brought more fully central into the way that Catholic social teaching is expressed and articulated, because we're really dealing here with fundamental sources of revelation, right? <laughs> and revelation is rather important for, uh, for those people who are believing Catholics and believing Christians. And we see in the scriptures, both the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures, any number of principles that we can arrive at through reason, but which direct revelation, divine revelation, gives us a, a greater appreciation of. So here's one example. Natural law tradition talks a great deal about justice, all different, different modes of justice. If you go back through the tradition of Catholic thinking about economic issues, we see many of these things are discussed through the mode, different modes of justice, contracts and commutative justice, issues of distribution and distributive justice. But you don't find the natural law tradition talking about something like the importance of mercy and the importance of 
forgiveness in the everyday ways in which we live our lives in civil society, in, in the political realm, or in the economy. Um, those things are very much distinctly Christian things. And the Christian, of course, takes justice very seriously, but we also believe that the quality, the characteristic, the habit of mercy is extremely important in making sure that something like justice doesn't become a type of legalism, for example. So those are some of the things that I think that Catholic social teaching, when it emphasizes those things, or even the practice of love, right? Um, Catholic social teaching, for example, in Deus Caritas Est, which is Benedict XVI's first encyclical, he talks there about how no amount of material help, whether it comes from the state or individuals or from civil society, <clears throat> says that there are situations of poverty and human misery to which um, justice is simply not going to fix the situation, that there is a need for people to live out the, the, the character of Christian love and Christian mercy, which requires us to go beyond what justice actually requires. He says there are some situations in which um, the concrete exercise of love of neighbor um, is really the only way in which you can address some of the deep social problems that a particular group or family or individual are experiencing. So those are sources and also certain imperatives that arise immediately from the Gospels, I think, are things that Christians and, other, and, and Catholics can introduce into this discussion and to say that, look, this is a unique, maybe this is a unique tradition, that a unique part of our tradition that is not necessarily shared by all the other traditions, but surely this is something that can help contribute to the common good, regardless of whether you are a Christian or not. Sorry, uh, we have a number of uh, people waiting. So Dr. Greg, once again, I'll you to be pithy, relatively pithy in your uh, answers. Uh, Thomas Searle, let's go to you and then Colin will come to you next. So Thomas, if you can unmute yourself and go ahead and ask your question. Hi there, thank you for, uh, thank you for being here and speaking to us. My question is, um, I think a lot of uh, people from different political ideologies have popes and encyclicals that they prefer to quote from. Um, oh. So of course, someone uh, who might be a little more market economy would prefer Leo the Thirteenth, and someone who leans towards a command economy might prefer Pope Francis. Um, so my question is, um, how would you recommend that a faithful Catholic uh, tries to should try to honestly engage with Catholic mm -hmm. social thought uh, without some of these like politically like political hermeneutics, basically? Well, thank you for the question. Um, this happens all the time. Um, people look for things in cyclicals that they like and they ignore things that they don't necessarily like. But the way I typically um, think about this is along the following lines. The principles of Catholic social teaching, things like the dignity of the person, the importance of liberty, the principle of solidarity, the principle of subsidiarity, those are the things that one has to pay attention to. And how, and how they apply in different circumstances is often a very secondary question. So um, 
uh, I think that the, the, the best way to avoid being sucked into ideological wars about these sorts of things is to focus upon the principles and to recognize that when a Pope says something like, makes a historical observation, or when a Pope makes what they think is an empirical observation, um, uh, we have to listen to those, we have to be uh, attentive to those, but they don't require the same degree of assent that, for example, the principles of Catholic social teaching had. So it's fine to debate um, the virtues of markets versus a more planned economy, etc. It's fine to um, say, well, I'm not sure that Pope X is quite right in his historical analysis of how a particular situation emerged. That's all fine. And in fact, I'm sure Pope Francis will tell you himself that those things are perfectly up for debate. But to avoid the, let's call it the ideologicalization of Catholic social teaching, I think that the best way to do that is to focus and identify the principles, why they're important, and to see these as, if you like, the concrete core of Catholic social teaching that never changes, no matter who the Pope is and no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. Very good. That's a great question. Uh, uh, Colin, can you uh, unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Greg, for uh, speaking with us today. My name is Colin McQuarrie. I'm a sophomore finance major here at Notre Dame. Um, my question is, how do you think the government today is doing in relation to the principle of subsidiarity during the current coronavirus situation? Do you think the government or the state is doing too much or not enough to, as you say, assist us and support us in pursuit of our human flourishing? Thank you. Well, thank you for the question. I am not an epi epidemiologist. Um, <clears throat> I am not someone who uh, has followed those, those particular debates particularly closely. Um, uh, but what I will say is this. Um, it's very clear that in emergency situations that Catholic social teaching does not have an in-principle problem with the state doing things in emergency situations that we would never let the state do in conditions of normality. Uh, if we were living in normal times, we would, we would never accept what is happening in many parts of the United States and the rest of the world, because uh, we would be looking at this and saying, well, this is almost pseudo totalitarian behavior, but we're living in a time of crisis. So in those, those situations, I think the principle of subsidiarity suggests that there is room for the state to do more than it otherwise would and to extend its certain powers and certain directions in ways that we would not never otherwise tolerate. But the same principle also says that when the situation of emergency comes to an end, then the state needs to retract itself from some of those activities and functions that we've allowed it to undertake because of an emergency. Um, I would also say, however, that if you look at the social tradition, it's also very cognizant of the fact that once you allow the state to expand into particular areas, in practical political terms, it's often very difficult to get the state to pull back, to pull back. In emergency situations, the state almost always extends its power 
And it's almost always the, the case that the state hangs on to many of those powers long after the emergency is over. So I think with the principle of subsidiarity, it would say, yes, in times of emergency, um, it's possible to extend state power, but the principle of subsidiarity would also say that once the emergency is over, then we need to have a very serious discussion about how we rein back the state from doing things that are, might be okay, might be okay in, in times of emergency, but are plainly not okay if we take all the principles of Catholic social teaching seriously in normal circumstances. Okay, thank you. Father Miss Campbell, are you able to unmute yourself? Yes, thanks very much. Uh, thanks, Philip. Dr. Greg, thanks so much. Uh, I want to ask if you could identify people or movements in the political realm who you think have taken Catholic social mm -hmm. teaching seriously, who would be sort of heroes, heroines of yours, who you could put forward as uh, folks who really have taken Catholic social teaching to heart. I, I mean, I think back to the post-World War II generation of folks like Adenauer and de Gasperi and so mm -hmm. on, but are there contemporaries around who you could uh, offer us as uh, folks who, you know, on whatever side of the spectrum might take Catholic social teaching seriously and seek them to implement it in the public sphere? Thank you, Father. Uh, first thing I'll say, it's always good to talk to a fellow Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it in case my accent has faded. <laughs> okay, so is mine. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Father. It's, it's nice to e-meet you. I'm very familiar with your work and I'm a great fan of your writings. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I will say is, um, uh, if you look at the interwar period, so let's say um, between 1919 and 1939, we see a variety of different movements that are directly inspired by Catholic social teaching, particularly in, uh, particularly in, uh, in Western Europe. We see the beginnings of insipid Christian democratic parties that are clearly shaped by Catholic social teaching. Yeah. After the Second World War, we see the emergence of people like, as you mentioned, Conrad Adenauer. Um, there are also people like um, uh, Robert Schumann, uh, people like um, Picaspari in Italy, who are very much taking Catholic social teaching very seriously. And we can see that many of the post-war constitutions of countries like Italy, West Germany, um, uh, France, Belgium, clearly embodies certain principles of Catholic social teaching. Even today's European Union, which I have to confess I'm not particularly a fan of, it does make reference to the principle of subsidiarity on many occasions, when it whether it's to do with things like the relationship between national governments and, the, and supranational institutions, or even within particular countries. Um, I have to say, that in our contemporary context, I think it's hard to find political leaders who are trying to follow through these things consistently. Mm. We hear many politicians on both sides, say in the United States, who will invoke Catholic social teaching for all sorts of things. Um, but it's usually quite partial. <laughs> There's some things they emphasize and some things that they don't emphasize. Um, 
And in many cases, they sometimes make the mistake of mixing up prudential judgments with the principles of Catholic social teaching. I've noticed, for example, that uh, Senator Marco Rubio, he has said very explicitly that he's quite influenced by Catholic social teaching mm. and many of its principles. Uh, there are politicians uh, in the Democratic Party who would say the same thing. I think I could, if I, if I looked at some of their speeches and different things that they've done and the way that they've voted, I could probably point out in most of these cases, uh, different individuals who have been, um, who have clearly not followed through on principles of Catholic social teaching, whether mm. it's sort of core issues of human life or even things like the principle of subsidiarity. I think that's often given a lot of lip service by um, Catholic politicians. But one person I think who was um, particularly influenced by Catholic social teaching in a very positive way, um, and this goes back a bit, and so this is not so much contemporary, is the German economist Wilhelm Robke. So he was a Lutheran, he was a Lutheran, but he was very influential in, in helping to build the German economic miracle after the Second World War. And if you read his writings, whether it's his, probably his most famous book in English is called A Humane Economy. And he's very much a free market economist. That's clearly what he is. But he also makes extensive reference to Catholic social teaching, particularly solidarity, the principle of subsidiarity, the importance of associations, the priority of culture. And he's a very good example of someone who, not even a Catholic, but was plainly very influenced by um, these ideas in ways that, <laughs> in some in ways, more extensive perhaps than, than many Catholic economists writing at the time. Okay, uh, Professor Otteson, and then I have a question that's been submitted by Professor Giles. Uh, Professor Otteson, perhaps you can unmute yourself and ask your question. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gregg. It's um, a pleasure to listen to you. Um, thank you very much for joining us. So I'm teaching a class right now in which, among other things, we're reading several uh, papal encyclicals. Um, and so my question builds on the question that Thomas Searle asked you a few minutes ago. Um, and I want to challenge you a bit. Um, so uh, my, my general question is whether Catholic social thought can be seen as speaking with one voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and more specifically, if you think about the arc from Rerum Novarum to the writings of Pope Francis, um, it seems as though it's not just a difference in maybe some historical um, uh, interpretations or interpretations of certain episodes in history, but almost something like a sea change um, in the view of socialism on the one hand and um, market or market-based economies on the other. So Pope Francis is, does not say I support socialism, um, but he's very critical of capitalism, of markets, and I think maybe more so than you, than you might have allowed a minute ago. So he repeatedly says trickle-down economics is a failure. Um, we cannot trust the invisible hand of Adam Smith. Um, we cannot trust the corrupting influences of capitalism. So those don't just seem to be um, you know, differences on the margins. Those seem to be a very different view. Now, if you say, well, what exactly are you proposing? What system of economics are you proposing as an alternative to markets? Pope Francis is not so clear about that. Um, but from an objective, you know, an, an mm -hmm. observer's, an outside observer's standpoint, if you read <laughs> Rerum Novarum, and then you read um, even, the, even the piece, what was it called, Fratelli Tutti, which just came out from him. 
it sure seems like we're diff living in different economic, uh, political economic worlds. So to what extent can that really be seen as a single voice from Catholic social thought? Well, thank you. That's a question I am often asked, and it's one I've thought about a great deal. And uh, I wrote a short piece about Fratelli Tutti, which um, appeared in Catholic World Report yesterday morning. So if you want to get a sense of what my, some my, my assessment of that uh, encyclical, um, you'll get a pretty clear idea where I come down on some of these things. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say <clears throat> is that um, if you look at the principles of Catholic social teaching um, in, the, in this most basic form, I think it's fair to say that there's continuity from Rerum Navarum to people like, to someone like Pope Francis. But here's the issue, which I think gets to what you're talking about. <clears throat> I personally think that Catholic social teaching in its present form is trying to do too much. It's talking about too many things. Um, if anything, I, I worry. I worry that there's not enough reference to scripture and church fathers. I even worry that there's not sufficient attention to the natural law tradition. Now, why do I say that? I say that because these are the sort of moorings that bring consistency to Catholic social teaching over time. And I think some of those moorings have slipped somewhat. Um, up until the 1960s, if you read a lot of Catholic social teaching, a lot of it was heavily drawing upon natural law reasoning. After Vatican II, the natural law dimension, I think, starts to disappear. Um, and you see attempts to bring in more scripture, more church tradition. But if you look at some of the more recent encyclicals, if you look at Laudato Si, if you look at Tutti Fratelli, Fratelli Tutti, not a lot of reference to scripture, not a lot of reference to tradition. A lot of it comes across as sociology. Now, I'm not against sociology. I'm, I'm all in favor of things like that. I like, like you, I like political economy. That's what interests me. Um, but I do think that, that Catholic social teaching is facing somewhat of a crisis, which helps to explain these disparities that you're talking about. Because they, they are real, they are real disparities. Um, because when you start to see them, and, you, and I think if you've got to ask yourself, why is this the case? I think it's because the tradition has shifted away from some of these very clear foundations that lend stability and consistency over time to the tradition. And if I had any advice for the Pope, it would be that if anything, what Catholic social teaching needs right now is much more emphasis upon understanding and explicating the principles and much less reflection upon what's happening at any given moment in a particular period of time. That I think is the, uh, that I think is the core problem that just explains this very real disparity that's going on. 
Um, and I think the way to do that is to, to, to bring back emphasis upon these foundations. That is how I think some of these disparities would uh, be, let's say, less apparent over time. Okay, I'm sensing that uh, uh, we need to invite you back to give a, another lecture on the crisis in, in Catholic social thought. Uh, I have a question here from, I believe it's from uh, Professor Giles, uh, Michael Giles, who's our postdoctoral fellow. Uh, I think he's in a position where he's not actually able to uh, uh, speak uh, his question. So let me read it. And if it's not a question for, uh, from Professor Giles, it's a very good question. So take credit, wh whoever wrote it. Um, uh, let me read it here for you. Uh, Dr. Gregg, thank you for your illuminating presentation. I have a question about the relationship between the universal destination of goods. Mm -hmm. uh, you described it as a principle for the distribution of goods based on use. Can you elaborate on that idea? What it means and how it relates to other grounds of private property? I'm thinking particularly of Marx and his principle of need, so use versus need, right. as well as Locke's discussion of ownership as the basis, as based on one's labor. Okay, so well, thank you. Uh, thank you, that's, uh, that's, that's a very good question. Well, uh, I think the best explanation that I've ever read of the universal destination of material goods is to be found in Gaudium et Spes, the Second Vatican Council's pastoral constitution on the church and the modern world, which talks about what this actually means. And the best interpretation I've ever read of that is by um, uh, a moral theologian who died maybe three or four years ago named Germain Grise. Uh, and he, I think, had a very good and precise understanding of what this understand, what the universal destination of material goods means. It means on one level that the goods of the earth are meant for all. It means that no one comes into this world with this piece of property assigned to them. Um, so in that sense, the world is common. The second thing about the universal principle is the idea of common use, that um, these are things for hu the human race to use, that we're not meant to sit around and do nothing. We're not meant to be static. We're meant to engage with this world and use it. All of us should be using these things responsibly and according to the principle of stewardship and with our freedom, but we should be using these things. And that's something that's, that's what we mean by common use. And the principle of uh, private property is the normative way in which that is arranged. And that's expressed very well. The reasons for that are expressed very well in Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, question 66, where he talks about the problems of common ownership. Common ownership generally has a very bad, <laughs> economically, politically, it usually turns out to be a disaster. I, the only place where it works is in monasteries, right? And even then, <laughs> so that's, an, that's one thing. Uh, he also talks about the fact, Aquinas also mentions the fact that private property encourages responsibility. It, require, it encourages us to be responsible in the way that we use our goods. It also, Aquinas also more or less says that uh, private property orientates our self-interest, orientates our self-interest towards um, the productive use of these things. So that sounds strange, but I think it's very clear if you read question 66, answer two, it's pretty much clear that that's what he's saying. So those are the foundations of private property from the standpoint of 
Let's call it the Thomistic tradition, the Catholic tradition. Now, it clearly differs from Marx's position insofar as uh, it's all about need. Um, the Catholic tradition doesn't ignore need, obviously, but it also says there are things like merit that are important. It also says that some of these other factors that I just mentioned are also part of the calculus that goes into the whole institution of private property. When it comes to Locke's theory of property, what's interesting is that if you read Rerum Novara, if you read Rerum Novara and its treatment of property, on one level, it's quite Thomistic. On another level, it sounds positively Lockean. He talks about, Leo talks about mixing our labor with the goods of the, with the natural world, with the things around us. That sounds pretty much like John Locke to me. And I think at the time it was freely acknowledged as sounding like John Locke. So, uh, but that disappears. You don't see that repeated in any other encyclical, except to the extent that Catholic social teaching takes the idea of human work very seriously. Work in the sense that um, we are called to work, that human beings, one of the things that distinguishes us from other animals is our capacity for work, especially our capacity for creative work. So that's how the whole labor discussion, I think, um, develops. It, it starts off with a type of pseudo-Lockean argument, but then it moves much more and very rapidly into this broader discussion about the, the importance of human work, how it gives us dignity, how it's essential for us as we grow as human beings, and its creative potential, which is very important for understanding things like entrepreneurship and things like business. Um, and that, I think, is how the whole labor discussion and its relationship to property gets mediated through the tradition over time. Dr. Greg, can I ask one clarification? Uh, would, um, in your understanding, would a Thomistic understanding of property then reject the uh, primacy of one's ownership of one's labor? Uh, are, they, are they talking past each other? Uh, are they compatible in some sense? Um, well, Catholic social teaching, it, it doesn't use the same vocabulary. Let me put it that way. It doesn't use the same vocabulary when it comes to this idea of the ownership of my labor. Now, Catholic social teaching and Catholicism in general doesn't buy into the, the idea that you hear in some, I guess you'd call them libertarian circles. It doesn't talk about self-ownership. It doesn't talk about, it doesn't use this type of language when it's describing the nature of human beings and our relationship to the material world. Um, but there is an implicit recognition, I think, that our labor, our capacity to work is something that we all share as human beings, but it's also something that we possess individually. We are made to work. We're not made to be passive creatures. We're not made um, to be sitting around doing nothing. And we're also supposed to be creative. And all that implies, I think, that we have to be the initiators of our own work. So it's a little different than the idea of I'm the owner of my labor, but it's very clear that, the, that work proceeds from the individual person. 
sometimes individuals working in groups and in communities and business, etc. But the choice to work has to come from us ourselves. And so there's a certain choice we have to make to activate our capacity to work. So that's not the same language as ownership or, or something like that. Um, but it does point to the fact that I think that, that, that work is something intrinsically human and intrinsic to each human being as an individual. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Greg. Uh, let me just say, uh, we do a lot of these events. Uh, it's not easy to translate them to the Zoom format, uh, but really excellent questions. So thank you to everyone who uh, participated. Thank you, Dr. Greg, for, for a very interesting lecture, very Notre Dame topic. Uh, and I'm, I'm very pleased that we were able to bring you here, if only uh, virtually. Uh, let me conclude uh, with a few thank yous. Uh, first to the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, who um, uh, helped co-sponsor this lecture. And then also to uh, Soren Hansen. Uh, we had two events today. Some of you have been with us uh, all afternoon. We did an event on uh, the Judge Barrett uh, confirmation hearings. So uh, it's been a, an extraordinarily, extraordinarily taxing day on the staff, and Soren has bared the brunt of that. So thank you very much to Soren. Um, Dr. Gray, we hope to have you back uh, to Notre Dame sometime soon, and hopefully uh, uh, visit in person sometime soon. Uh, let me draw this uh, event to a close and thank you everyone uh, for joining us.